Hey everybody, welcome to Performance Anxiety. This episode means a lot to me for two reasons. Number one, it's the 100th episode. When I started doing this podcast, I wasn't even sure I could get to 10 shows, let alone 100. And number two, my guest is Mark Lanigan. His voice is instantly recognizable, and I've been listening to him for years. In addition to his solo work, he's sung for Screaming Trees, Queens of the Stone Age, the Gutter Twins, the Twilight Singers, and countless other projects. His story is unique, and I never thought my 100th episode would be with someone of his stature. There's a lot of incredible stuff in this episode about Screaming Trees, Mad Season, Queen of the Stone Age, Alan Johannes, and so much more. But there's also a lot of laughs. He's got a new book and a new album coming out, and with so much on lockdown right now, this is the perfect time to order them. Thank you, Mark, for joining me in this milestone show. Now let's get into this episode before I go too far with this intro. Hi, this is Mark Lanigan, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety. I'm in quarantine, so I've got nothing but time. Yeah, well, we're in, we're in like martial law here, so... Oh, jeez. So thank you so much for joining me, man. I appreciate this. My pleasure. Sorry, I got it. Eat this yogurt, real quick. Dude, no worries, man. You do what you got to do. I don't. I've. I had. I had a uh, Jerry Gaskell from King's X on. And he had to piss in the middle of it. <laughs> so <laughs> if I can record through that, I can record through yogurt. No big deal. Just. I'm, I'm not sure if. Uh, I think I may have mentioned this, but this is going to be my hundredth episode. So this is pretty special to me. So thank you so much for coming on, man. My pleasure. Mm. So yeah, I had Alan uh, Johannes on. I've had Matt Boroff on. Ian Ottaway. How'd you ever hear of Ian Ottaway and Matt Boroff? Ian, I met through Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Been a big fan of theirs for years. And I reached out when I started doing this show. I reached out to Leah because she had, had she'd had brain surgery several months before. So I love the music, and I uh, thought it was an interesting story. And I wanted to know more about it. So I reached out to her and she's like, yeah, sure. I'd love to come on. So, uh, but I'd, you know, been following them for years and checking out their website and they always had that ask Ian section. And right, uh, right. yeah, so I, I had talked to him a little bit through there and then um, just through him and, and uh, Paula through their management company, I just kind of reached out to Ian and said, Hey, you know, would you want to come on the show? You know, cause you do stuff. It's creative, you know, he does music and, and some poems and shit like that. And Sorry. I thought, yeah, I've known uh, in Ottawa since he was 17 years old. Oh, wow. He's something else, man. He's a, he was a really cool guy to talk to. Yeah, he's a good, he's, he's got a good heart. Yeah, he really does. He really does. And then after I had, had him on, he's like, you got to get Matt Boroff on. So I'm like, oh, okay. Checked out Matt's stuff and I liked it. And then I uh, was talking to him about, like, I, I, I want, I would like somebody recognizable for the 100th episode. Come on. And he's like, hey, you should, you should uh, ask Mark Lanigan. Because we talked about you guys working together. And uh, he's like, I, I said, well, I'd love to. I just don't know how to get up with him. He's like, let me, let me send him an email, see if he's interested. And that's, that's how I ended up reaching out to you so and then i told ian and he's like oh good at least i don't have to reach out to mark for you 
<laughs> I was like, well, like, you can if you want to. He's like, ah, no, that's all right. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. He's hyper vigilant when it comes to not harassing me. Yeah. I'm actually uh, opening. I just got back to my studio here, and which might look like a garage because it's like. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I'm getting. Here's the first copy of my. Oh, awesome. Book. That's fantastic. Oh, I can't wait to get it. Wow. Very cool. That's amazing. Yeah. One of those one of those secret dreams you have as a kid that somehow miraculously comes true. Of course, <laughs> this wouldn't have been the story I would have wished to have told, but Oh yeah. It was the one I had. <laughs> <laughs> Who the fuck are my cigarettes? I haven't even had a cigarette yet today. Oh man, well, we'll I'll definitely wait till we get that squared right. away. Here we go. All right. I want you to be nice and comfortable. So I'm about to sit down at the uh, at the old the old Pro Tools laptop where I have work to do today and. Now I'm ready to talk. All right. Sorry about that. No need to be sorry at all. Like I said, I want you to be comfortable and enjoy this because. It's your 100 episodes. Fuck, it... of course. How am I not going to enjoy it? <laughs> exactly. So, so let's, let's start off with how you got into music. Did you start a, as a musician or, or were you always singing was always your, your thing? And how did it get started? Um, God, why did I leave you? Oh, there you are. <laughs> um, I was just, I was just a fan of music. I lived in a small rural country town, you know, um, cattle ranching and agricultural, uh, business was, was, uh, the main, uh, source of economy there. Okay. So punk rock, um, was virtually unheard of. As was as was classic rock. I mean, you listen to country music. That was it. That's all they had on the radio. And oh, wow. uh, I managed to steal an Alice Cooper eight track from the college bookstore. <laughs> and that was my first, like you know, that. And my old man was a teacher, and they were closing down the school where he worked. They found a box of records in there, and they asked him, "Do you want these?" and he said, well, I'll see if my son wants them. And I was probably eight, nine years old. And in that box was Autobahn by Kraftwerk. Oh, wow. And one Lightning Hopkins record and one John Lee Hooker record and some other stuff. I don't know what it was. But but those three things kind of uh, started me off. Uh, were my first three favorite records. And, and still to this day, I'm sort of doing a, my version of of the blues via craft work. <laughs> <laughs> so did you ever pick up an instrument or was singing always your main instrument? Well, singing wasn't even my instrument. Uh, I didn't have one. I had an acoustic guitar with like two strings on it. And <laughs> there was a, there was a bookstore and it was more like a 
more like a hoarder's den, but a small bookstore run by a hippie in my hometown where there was also small, there was also a small university there, which like doubled the population of the, of the, of the town when it was in session, which meant it went from like, uh, 5,000 to 10,000 people when the university was. <laughs> oh man. Sounds like where I used to live in Alabama. But, um, I, I collected comic books as a kid and, at one point, I saw a copy of Cream Magazine with Iggy on the cover, and I thought, who's this weird-looking dude? And I asked the guy, the guy who owned it, and he goes, that's Iggy Pop, and I have a, I have a 45 if you want to hear what he sounds like, and it was a, it was a seven-inch EP of Tight Pants, Scene of the Crime, and one other song, I can't remember which one. Oh, wow. And he played that for me, and and then he pulled out, like... All like the holiday in the sun, uh, uh, God save the queen, anarchy in the UK, pretty vacant. He had all the original sex pistols, seven inches and he had 12 inch, uh, single of anarchy in the UK. Oh, wow. I heard all that on the same day. And the next day I traded in all my comic books for credit records. And I, (laughs) and I cleaned out every punk rocker he had, but he had quite, you know, he, it, it was so unlikely um, because I, I had to have been the only person that even bought this stuff. But, you know, I was a 14 year old kid. And, uh, but I, that's how I, you know, he had the Stranglers, the damn first record. Oh, wow. And so I was really, I lucked out, you know. But then for the next eight years, I listened to punk rock. In solitude, I couldn't even talk my friends into listening to it. Oh, geez. And um, and then eventually start taking the Greyhound bus to Seattle and just like, you know, walking around to record stores there and buying, buying records just uh, by the cover or how they looked, you know. Yeah. I mean, I would do the same thing when I was going through the record stores, look at something that looked really cool. And all right, I'm going to give this a shot just because of the cover art. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that's kind of lost a lot today. Well, that's because there is no cover art. There's no records. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's nothing to hold on to. No, there isn't. And there's also no payment for the for the record for the music that we make because of the the criminals, you know. Yeah. Uh, conspiracy of streaming, which is, I mean, not that I ever really, you know, made my living off of record sales. There's only two times I, I, you know exceeded my advance and quickly was twice. And, (laughs) and that was like in 2004 and 2012 when it was already an outlier that you sold records. Um, but I hadn't made a record in eight years and that ended up being my best selling record ever. But, uh, you know, in the nineties we just lived off advances because they give you crazy big advances that you never expected to recoup. And, and you never did. In fact, it was 20 years. Well, it was a good, probably 15 years after I had, no, it was 10 years after I had left Sub Pop and 20 years after I had made my first record for them that I first get, got my first royalty check. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. And that was only when they made a box set, you know, which I guess uh, put me into the fucking, to the red. Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez. So was Screaming Trees your first band then? 
Yeah, it was my first and only band wow. um, because they were the only guys I knew, and it took me a long time to meet them. I mean, I knew always knew who they were yeah. because it's a small town, but it's not like we interacted or anything. Van Connor, the bass player, was three, four years younger than me. Uh, Lee Connor was three, four years older than me. Okay. Um, Mark Pickerel was a young kid. So that it was, we weren't, you know, we didn't run the same circles, let's put it that way. And I met Van Connor in my senior year in high school when he was a sophomore in detention class. <laughs> and he had on like a tiny YouTube button on his shirt. And that might as well have been like, you know, a sign that said I'm a Martian where I was from. And I was like, what? Somebody here knows who U2 is, you know, and it's not even like I was a huge U2 fan, but I did have their first record. I bought it at, at, a, uh, at a head shop that was short-lived in my hometown before it got shut down. By the <laughs> and, um, and so we started talking and it turned out, you know, that we listened to a lot of the same music and he said, you got to meet my brother because he's got a huge record collection and it sounds like, you know, you do too. And, and you guys, you know, might trade records or whatever. And, yeah. and, uh, anyway, one thing led to another and three years later, well, for the next three years or whatever, I was his, we, I was Van's weed dealer while he was still in high school. I was graduated. <laughs> and then at, uh, at some point I quit smoking weed and drinking and, I ran into him and I was looking for a job. I wanted, I had always wanted to get out of where I grew up. It just wasn't, uh, I mean, beautiful physically, I guess. Uh, but just culturally it was a, it was a dead end street for me. Okay. And, uh, and I, I said, I'm looking to make some money and get out of here. And he goes, well, his family owned a, a video store that also sold appliances like, TVs, VCR, stuff like that. Okay, yeah. Rent to own plans. Yeah, yeah. And he said, just today, my dad said, we need somebody to repossess, to, to repo the stuff that the, that the guys aren't making payments on, and you're perfect. I said, when can I do it? When can I, you know, when can I start? <laughs> he said, we'll go talk to Gary, which is how he referred to his dad. Okay. <laughs> by, by, by first name, they all did. That was which I found a little weird, but there were yeah. eight, eight kids in their family. So they were a bit quick. And, um, and Gary senior hired me on the spot and that's how I started you know, working for them. And once I had basically cleaned up his, his, uh, late payment sheet, which put me into conflict with people every single day, you know, yeah. you know, <laughs> trailer parks who didn't want to give back their TV sets. <laughs> Oh man! Well, that's yeah, all they had at that point. You living in the yeah, of course, and uh, I wouldn't have wanted to either. But anyway, he he gave me a job in the shop because he could never talk his own kids into even working in the in the shop themselves. <laughs> oh, jeez! But in the back room, they had a there was a big back room, and that's where their band rehearsed. And uh, at some point, like Van had because he had known me for a few years, he had seen a partial drum set in my house. Like I had a floor tom and a ride symbol i think was it oh wow that some guy i worked with at a restaurant had traded me for some weed <laughs> <laughs> and um 
And he asked me, do you still got that drum set? And I was like, well, well no, I don't. And it wasn't really a drum set. It was just two pieces of one. <laughs> and he was like, well, because we want to start a new band and we don't want Lee to be in it. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and we want you to be the drummer. I was like, man, I'm, you know, I can't drum. And he's like, no, it'll be no problem. Pickerel will teach you how to do it. And Mark Pickerel, even though he was young, was was not only a really good drummer at the time, but he was also a really good singer. And what they wanted to do with the new band was Mark wanted to be the singer. They wanted to find a new drummer. And since I was the only guy they knew that listened to the same kind of music, they thought, hey, they thought somehow it forced me into the drummer seat. <laughs> <laughs> I can still barely, you know, program a drum machine. So, but, um, I, I had to go out to their to their family's house to deliver something to their dad for work, and that's when I first met Lee. I started talking to their mom, and she said, "You know, Lee writes his own songs." And I was like, "No, I didn't know that because nobody had bothered to tell me that." <laughs> she was like, "Lee, Lee, get out here!" You know, and he's like, "For fuck's sake, I'm doing something. Leave me alone." <laughs> She's like, "You get out here and show Mark your songs." And so, so I followed this guy into his room, you know, and like I met him. He was, he was, a, he, I can't really describe his personality because it was too complex, but <laughs> let's just say that it, it was a strange relationship we had. And, yeah. um, <laughs> well, that's an interesting way to start it for sure. And he sat down and proceeded to play me four track demos like he had maybe 70 or a hundred of them written in like oh, two years. Jeez. And I recognized being a music fan that there was something to him. I mean, they weren't like, it wasn't like punk rock. It wasn't modern. Like, like the songs that their covers band played, you know, they would play echo and the bunny Man and stuff in the oh. back room and they would play like, you know, dances and, and, church things that they like set up themselves. Um, but, but the music that he was writing himself was really, it was raw and guitar heavy and really catchy, catchy vocal parts. Um, but also with some of the stupidest lyrics ever. So, but I was fascinated, you know, I, I had never seen anybody record their own music. I hadn't seen a four track Tascam cassette and, um, and I was fascinated. And then he asked me if I wanted to, uh, you know, write some words for a song together. And I, even though, you know, I was ill-equipped, I had never done anything like that before. I, I sat down and did that with him. And that ended up, unfortunately, being on our first EP because, <laughs> because we grew up in public and learned how to make music publicly. So, Man. We, and we were, we were slow learners uh, as a group. He was, he was, far ahead of the but again the lyrics that he wrote i had no connection to because they were sort of his thing was sort of like the that uh kind of phony psychedelia oh. thing that raises its head in the early 80s yep and he was a slave to the nuggets collection and all that which which is all good and fine you know yeah. but but when you are the guy who has to sing songs about smiling cats and rainbows and shit, and, <laughs> and and by the way, written by a guy who had not only never smoked pot, but had never even dropped acid. 
and I had done things for years, you know, it just, you know, but I, but I did it because it was an opportunity to get out of town and because it was exciting to, to sing music, you know, and to yeah. suddenly like have it drop in my lap. And that's how, that's how I got started with those guys. So at that point, has Mark been relegated back to drums and you're, and, and you're singing and then. Well, what happened was I went to work the next day and Van said, oh, I hear you're friends with Lee now. I guess you're the first one he's ever had. You know? <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> he, he, was, he was socially um, challenged. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I said, well, I don't know about that, but why didn't you ever tell me about the songs this guy's written? And, and this is the guy you want to kick out of the band? Because to me, Ellensburg also had lots of cover bands because there was a place you know, like a tavern where there were, you know, cover bands would play every weekend. And, okay. and, uh, but I was into, you know, punk rock. So playing covers just was pointless. And this guy was making original music and I wanted in on it. You know what I mean? I said, I said, I will, I'll be in a band with you guys, but under this you know, stipulation that you don't fire the one guy who's writing music. Yeah. <laughs> and then Van, Van was like, well, I guess then you'll have to be the singer. Mark will have to play, keep playing drums. And I, was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I'll give it a shot. You know what I mean? Cause it was either that or keep repossessing TV sets and, and, the, and worse jobs. So, you know, I was willing to give anything a shot and, Two months later, we were recording our first EP. was the beginning of a a, uh, a streak of maybe five or six of the worst records ever made right in a row. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go there because I, I like them, but... <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I, just, I, don't, I don't actually believe that. I'm, I'm proud of those records and I'm proud they exist because... It's what it's how I learned how to do what I do now, and you know I, I'm very grateful to those guys yeah. for uh, you know including me. Uh, otherwise, it would have been prison or, or death for me probably. Um, One of the things that I really like about the Screaming Tree stuff is that it's it is that it's like a mix of, of punk and psychedelic stuff. It's it's a really gr- it's it's like aggressive psychedelic music, it, and that's that's kind of what drew me into it. Well, and that that was the influence of the band. That was it was you know me, Van, and and Mark were were the punk rockers, and Lee was the you know the songwriter and the, yeah. the leader in the psychedelic bastion. Of, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's uh, it was it was a strange mishmash. It was, and, uh, but you guys, and like, even when you guys would do covers, you would do some interesting stuff. Like you would do Jimi Hendrix and then suicide. Yeah. I remember our first sets, like were at least three quarters were, were Stooges songs. <laughs> and then, and then the other quarter would be black flag songs, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> which I was, I was into that, you know? Oh yeah. And eventually 
ironically enough, Mark Pickerel went to a Black Flag show in Seattle and got a cassette of that EP into Greg Ginn's hands. And meanwhile, we had played one tour, and I call it a tour, and that's being very kind to call it a tour because it was a couple of record stores and a couple of really obscure radio shows. <laughs> but when we had played in Santa Monica in the record store there, that sadly doesn't exist anymore, um, a friend of the guy who had recorded our first records in Ellensburg, a guy named Steve Fisk, who was a producer of some renowned... Oh, I love um, Steve Fisk stuff. Yeah, and his uh, pigeon head thing. Yeah, uh, with with the late Sean Smith was great. Um, oh yeah, I, I was was talking with with Sean um, about two weeks before he passed away. He had, he was gonna he agreed to come on the show, and we were gonna we we're setting up a, a date, and I uh, found out like he sent me he he uh, messaged me a demo, and then and he said all right you know, let me know, give me, send me a couple dates and we'll, we'll get something together. And then the next day I found out he, he passed away. Yeah. That was a huge shock. Sean. Yeah. And I ran in different circles, but I also, I always respected him as a singer. He was great. Yeah. And he was also a very, very sweet, sweet guy. Very nice to me. And, uh, that was, you know, I mean, just the, just the, 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 the great amount of I mean, the amount of great singers that came out of that scene was pretty unheard of I think for a provincial city of that size and and then just to have them all like die before they got to be 50 years old was oh it's it's horrible and so much talent gone it's 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 so sad yeah and you know Especially somebody like Sean, for me, to me, you know, who never really got the recognition that I, I think he deserved. Well, he was he was like the prince of Seattle. Yeah, you know what I mean, and uh, and that's not even doing him justice, really, because he was just uh, you know ultra talented, great, great singer, yeah. and an amazing voice. And there's there's guys who are great singers, I guess, but whose voices you know, or generic or whatever. Yeah. He he had th that combination of a really unique voice and was an amazing singer as well, which a lot of those guys were. Um, but uh, he was, uh, he was definitely the real deal and uh, a huge loss. You yeah, know? for sure. For sure. But uh, so you were, you're talking about, about how Mark got the uh, cassette, your guys cassette into Greg Ginn's hands. Right. Mark went to see them at the boxing club and, oh, gave the cassette to Greg. But in the meantime, we had also played at this record store. And one of Steve Fisk's old buddies who used to manage his band, Pell Mel, which was an instrumental band from San Francisco, okay. a guy named Ray Farrell, worked at SST. And he, you know, grudgingly agreed to let us stay, two guys stay in his apartment right, right right underneath the fucking flight path of LAX. Oh, geez. And then two of us stayed in the room, which I was one of those guys. So it was just like, you know, flight after flight, oh, okay. a van all night long. And he was kind of, he kind of came across as a curmudgeonly, you know, guy doing a friend a favor. Right. But he came to the show and 
I remember Salem 66 was playing too and and I liked their records and plus they were you know slightly older hotter chicks so <laughs> that was just excitement for me and, <laughs> but um after the show Ray was he turned from you know this like kind of mute kind of uh, stern character who wanted to get us the fuck out of his parking lot and his apartment. Somebody who was ultra excited because uh, the live show had had struck him in a way that uh, that he got he, he became a giddy teenager basically. Oh wow! And so between him reporting to Greg that he had seen this band and then Greg getting this cassette, which by the way, was had nothing to do with our live show. It was terrible 60s influence, you know, bad. One of which was one of the first songs, was the first song I'd ever had something to do with writing. A terrible song called Pictures in My Mind. <laughs> <laughs> Between those two things, I was at work a week later uh, at the store, and I got a call. And uh, guy asked, "Are any members of Scream Trees there?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I'm, I'm the singer." And he said, "Well, this is Greg Gann of SST Records." And of course, I thought that was a total whine. I didn't believe it for a second. Um, <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, sure, you are." And he was. And then there was a big long silence because Greg was difficult to communicate with. <laughs> I've heard that. And then he would put long silences in weird places. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, are you still there? Excuse me. Did I ask you a question or did you ask me one? I can't remember because the pause has been so long, you know? <laughs> but yeah, he was like, yeah, yeah, this is me, you know? And I was like, oh, okay. He was like, you know, I'd, I'd like you guys to put out records for SST and bang. That was, to, to, still to this day, it was the most exciting thing and also most unlikely thing that has ever happened to me in my life because SST at the time was by far the hippest indie in the whole United States. Yeah. Maybe the, maybe the world. And um, we were the first Washington State band. And also, by the way, Eastern Washington, which is a whole different thing than Western Washington, <laughs> Seattle. You know, it's like we we were like the hillbillies. You know, um, pe people store, still wear cowboy hats and cowboy boots as their everyday are and where, where we grew up. So, but uh, he was—I'll never forget—he was like, "Yeah, you know, this is this this and this will happen," and. I'd like you guys to come down to, you know, Los Angeles when we'd just been there. But of course, you know, we had also been there when we'd mastered our first record and I'd lived off an apple fritter all the way from Portland, Oregon through my three days in LA staying outside 
on Sunset Boulevard in the in the station wagon outside the mastering studio of John Gold. Oh my God. <laughs> we didn't get the record cut on our first LP. Oh jeez. <laughs> but but I was game to go back because, you know, this was this was SST and Yeah, yeah. And so I remember him saying and, and we have our own house, we have our own in house booking agents. And so we'll put you guys on tour. And I was like, great. And I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck is a booking agent? (laughs) 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 Because I'd never been east of the Rockies, you know? Yeah. I was 22 years old and I still hadn't been anywhere. Wow. Except California, New Mexico, which I went every summer because that's where my folks were from. But, you know, and then immediately went on the road we met mike watt and he took a liking to the connor boys because they reminded him of d boone who had recently passed and yeah. Firehose was starting and so our first two tours were opening for Firehose for two and a half three months at a time wow the first one for 100 bucks a night which was basically enough to get us from place to place yeah. you know? <laughs> and then the second tour was for 200 bucks a night <laughs> man you double your income. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> I'm still I'm, I'm still not sure it was quite worth it. <laughs> but. One of the questions I've always wanted to uh, know the answer to is what is behind the name Screaming Trees? Where did that come from? Uh, we like to say it came from there was an old electroharmonics pedal called the Screaming Tree, which ironically was a treble booster because. Anybody who's ever heard Lee Connor, and especially anyone who ever heard him live, knows that he had the highest, thinnest, shittiest tone of any guitar player ever. <laughs> so a trouble booster was not needed. <laughs> but but it really was just us, you know, just throwing ideas out. And I think somebody said "screaming freaks," and then that was like, "Oh, that's not that's not really good." And "screaming trees," that's not really good either. But we'll go with that. You know what I mean? <laughs> so for 15 years, I was saddled with one of the worst band names ever, yeah. as well as as well as like you know, one of the worst bands ever. <laughs> <laughs> The name is kind of what drew me in the first time I heard it. I was like, screaming trees. I said, this sounds crazy. So that's the name, and bad as it may be, kind of definitely drew me in and, and, and made me curious about the band. So that worked out, at least. At least on my end, it did. You know, amazingly enough, there were some people who connected with that music, and and I'm very lucky that they did because I was... It wasn't easy, but I was able. But I was able to, uh, you know, manage to continue on and forge some sort of career that had nothing that kind of music afterwards. And that wasn't easy because I had to completely distance myself from Seattle grunge, any um, any anniversary Rolling Stone Dane to fucking call me and ask me a question about. I just wouldn't take the call because because I had to uh, I had to be known as something other than you know this uh, junkie ex-grunge singer who never made it you know because I I I wanted to make music A that I enjoyed after 15 years of you know toil and I wanted to keep singing you know and I knew I had uh, I knew that it was what 
I still loved and was obsessed with and and to do anything else would have just not worked for me. So well, when you did the winding sheet, was the plan to start a solo career or was that just something to do while you had some downtime? It was something I had I did because I was offered thirteen thousand dollars to do it, which wow. was which was at least twelve thousand dollars more than I'd ever had at one time. <laughs> so I quick bought a crappy acoustic guitar and a Mel Bay guitar chord book. I have one of those. And, yep. Well, within two weeks, I had written the songs for the winding sheet. Um, wow. Just, just by like, I would, I would, I worked in a warehouse at the time. And towards the end of the day, I would come up with a vocal melody, and then as soon as I got home, I would find the chords that fit underneath that melody, which is basically the complete bass backwards way of doing stuff. <laughs> um, but I didn't know that, and um, and then two months later, you know, I was in the studio recording that stuff, and. In the meantime, I'd got my friend Mike Johnson, who was a real guitar player and played in a Eugene, Oregon band called Snake Pit. To uh, I talked him into moving up to Seattle and putting intros, outros, and middle sections on my songs because I was at the you know at the furthest edge of my my talent. Yeah. <laughs> just to, just to put chords underneath the singing parts I had, you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, it was it was two months from the time I first learned to chord till I was in the studio making that record. Wow. Yeah. It took me a long time to get motivated. I mean, I just, just because I, just because of force of will and, and life experience, it was a little different than what the other guys had with their church groups and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to become like the de facto leader of the band even though i was at least musically proficient and had nothing to do with creating the music just to keep just somebody had to grab the reins and i was that guy oh wow because yeah. nobody quit for it you know well yeah and then you guys hit had such big success after the single soundtrack and, and sweet oblivion were you ex expecting that to, ha to happen i mean was there any clue that that uh, it was going to explode so much well, I mean, it was exploding hugely from my closest friends in a way that was, I mean, you know, Kurt Cobain and I had been close friends since long before he was a superstar. In fact, when we met, I was the famous one. <laughs> <laughs> but, but my friend Dylan Carlson asked me as a favor to go down to the Ellensburg Public Library where his, his best friend's band was playing and his best friend was a fan of my music and wanted to meet me. And that friend turned out to be Kurt Cobain. And um, so, you know, um, it, I, I didn't, A, for one thing, it wasn't huge success. We sold some records for the single soundtrack, but... Yeah. We had to we had to sign away any rights to royalties or sync fee or anything oh. to be on the soundtrack. And by the way, we were like the only band on Sony that wasn't like asked to be on the record. So that tells you something about like either the politics involved, our unpopularity with maybe some of the other bands, or you know maybe the unpopularity of our A&R guy at Sony or whatever. Yeah. 
but we sold our our single for that soundtrack was i think the second second most popular single on the on the record and that record sold two million copies of which we got nothing oh, meanwhile God. meanwhile mudhoney was paid like thirty thousand dollars just to use their song jeez and um and then two months later when our record comes out and they put out the same single again it was, it was done already you know what i mean yeah so i take exception when i when at times i have read stuff like screaming trees were raised to their height by this single soundtrack when i'm thinking uh no actually we helped raise the single soundtrack to it, its height and by doing so shot ourselves in the dick yeah and you know, we sold around three hundred thousand copies, which is not a hit, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> In my opinion, I mean, the stuff off of off of Sweet Oblivion is amazing. I, I like Dollar Bill better than Nearly Lost You anyway. So. <laughs> the reason that record happened, I was already on to my second solo record. Yeah. The time. I had quite a large advance from Sub Pop, 13,000 being the first one. So the second one was substantially larger. And I didn't have to split that with anybody. And since I'd been making records for years with the trees for a thousand bucks a piece. Yeah. I just, I didn't care about the trees anymore. It wasn't, I was eight years into it. And, I wasn't. I was not going to be singing somebody else's lyrics anymore. And also, by now, I knew how to write my own songs, and I also knew how to write songs for other people. And yeah. so, I gave those guys. They, you know, they were all excited because of what was happening in Seattle, and Epic was suddenly all excited to keep us. Whereas we, we had been signed pre-grunge during the hair metal days, and they would have dropped us in a second had Nirvana not happened. Yeah, um, exactly. But now they saw an opportunity, and frankly, I wasn't—I I wasn't going to be involved. And and I told that to Van Lee. I said, "I'm, I'm done. You know, I can't—I uh, can't do this anymore." And I had like this uh, for me huge advance and total freedom to make this record for Sub Pop, and I didn't really care. You know what I mean? It was great that you know my friends. Lane Staley, you know, was a huge star by that time. Kurt Cobain, a superstar. My two close friends in the, you know, besides Dylan Carlson in the in the whole entire scene. But it just wasn't worth it after eight years of traveling in a van, you know, to to sing somebody else's words that yeah. sucked, basically. And I, and I had no connection to. And, um, and so I bowed out. And that caused, a, you know, a fit from, you know, our, our, our fearless leader who tore apart his own apartment in a, in a rage. And I said, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to be part of their, you know, their huge planned successful second record for Epic. Oh, <laughs> man. 
And they called me back in a couple of weeks and asked me to come over and talk. And I, I had quit and joined a bunch of times while we still lived in our hometown because I would, you know, look for any reason to get out of town. And then after touring with those guys for two and a half months, I just couldn't bear the thought of even being in the room with them. And so I would quit and then faced with like the reality of being back in my hometown with no, you know, future, I would rejoin. So I think they were just thinking that, that I was just going to rejoin and I actually was not going to. And they proposed that we write the songs together, that the lyrics would be in my hands. And, uh, and I agreed to give that a try. Okay. And, and we started by writing songs in Lee Connor's tiny studio apartment on Capitol Hill in Seattle. And Dollar Bill was one of the first songs we wrote. Uh, Van was just playing a, you know, a riff on the acoustic guitar. And, and Lee allowed it to happen, you know, whereas for years it was very, very hard to get him to relinquish uh control and allow any sort of inclusion in that department. Okay. And then at the same time, we hired a new drummer, Eric Martin, and between the shift in the way we wrote songs and, and the inclusion of Barrett, that made all the difference because suddenly we had a drummer who could could not only play with like John Bonham, but, you know, had the, like a sense of the bigger picture, whereas... You know, God bless every one of our other drummers. Mark Pickerel, great drummer in his way, um, great guy. Yeah. But we were used to just guys basically playing whatever they felt like playing and, and not really, you know, not not really seeing the, the big picture of the song. Right, right. And Barrett, and Barrett was a real drummer, and I think that's why the huge shift between the first epic record which was basically made the same way as all of our sst records and it sounded better yeah and then uh the sweet oblivion which was made a completely different way with a drummer who made it into more of a classic rock sound as opposed to this mishmash of you know nuggets versus you know punk rock right <laughs> that had come before okay so you start writing your own stuff, you making writing your own lyrics, and then you end up uh, doing Whiskey for the Holy Ghost. And I think that's a great album. Carnival is one of my favorite songs that you've ever done on, on your solo work. I absolutely love Carnival. But I heard a story about you not being happy with the Masters and you're going to throw them into a pond or something? Well, I... You know, we toured for a long time because of the success of Sweet Oblivion. <laughs> so we did a lot of touring. And at the same time, I was still, I had already begun working on the second, you know, solo record, okay. which which was my obsession. I, I was obsessed with, a, you know, an unreachable paradigm of making a record like the kind that you can't plan, the kind that you can't make happen like Trout Mask Replica or Star Sailor and Buckley or especially Van Morrison's Astral Weeks was a huge touchstone. When you talk about Carnival, there's, I mean, and if you, if you think about it for a second, 
there's never been like more of a rip off of Van Morrison probably than that song. <laughs> That's, that's, I was obsessed with making that kind of record because I'd made so many records that were unsatisfying. Uh, yeah, it was great that Sweet Oblivion, you know, had saw some success and that I was involved in singing lyrics that I cared about and had personal meaning to me. And, and it sounded great. And it was a, you know, it was a fun experience to make the record where all of them before we'd made two days and, you know, just were basically just like rehearsals being recorded. Um, that uh, I became obsessed with making a, a great record that one that would define an artist that uh, couldn't be compared to anything else you know yeah. <laughs> just that, that that's uh, that's that's where my mind went and I still and when I make records still you know I, I try to make them as great as I possibly can because I made so many records that I instinctively knew were not that it became really important to me that everything I did was as quality as, as it could be. And, and this record in particular was my first opportunity to really try and make a great record like that. So I had heard Van Morrison's Astro Weeks was made in three days and that was my plan. Wow. Four years later, I'm still I'm still working on it. <laughs> and I had I had used so many engineers and producers who had worked with me in the past, great guys like Jack and Dino, Terry Date. Yeah. You know, fantastic people, also very talented engineers and producers and who, you know, were willing to indulge me and, you know, work for me for basically for nothing to help me get this record done. And I basically had lost my mind in the minutia of, you know, the songs, the sequences, the, the mixing, the remixing, the rewriting, the, you know, this huge pile of canisters just kept getting bigger and bigger. (laughs) And at one point, Jack and Dino and I were at this place called Bear Creek, which is out in Woodenville, Washington, which is a suburb of Seattle. And, you know, it's pastoral, beautiful countryside. And uh, there was indeed a creek that ran the property. And for a couple of days, he was trying to mix a song for me. And I knew it was missing this element that gave it the forward propulsion that it needed. I didn't know it was if, if it was a kick or what, but I knew it was a it was a rhythmic thing. Okay. And um, basically, at the end of a couple of days of trying to find this thing, Jack turned to me and said, "Mark, I don't think that this track you're looking for exists." <laughs> <laughs> and and I took that to mean that what what do you think I'm crazy? You know what I mean? Because. Uh, and yes, and 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 that was crazy. But I also kept track of things, you know, like in my mind, so I knew that this thing existed. Um, 
but I just started slowly picking up the canisters of tape. I'd had it and I started, I started like sort of serpentine weaving my way out the door towards the creek with, with this huge stack of fucking, you know, old school metal canisters of tape in my yeah. hand. And Jack was like, Mark, what are, you, what are you doing? Hold on a second. You know, I was like, just didn't pay any attention. I kept walking, staggering forward, you know, carrying this thing that was probably weighed twice as much as I did. naked, yeah. And, um, and finally he realized I was, I was going to throw it in the creek and he jumped in front of me and stopped me. And I was pretty exhausted at the time. And basically he, you know, he said, look, 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 I'm going to get to the bottom of this. We'll figure it out. And I just, I just handed the tapes over and, and wow. I fell asleep and, and a few hours later, he woke me up and he goes, is this what you were looking for? And he had found this kick drum that was indeed the fucking thing I had been looking for. And he said, whoever has been keeping track of these tracks has been doing a piss poor, unprofessional job of it. <laughs> and, and I knew exactly who that person was because it was me. <laughs> <laughs> and he had, he had found it on a track that didn't have any name, you know what oh. I mean? Um, <laughs> so he he not only saved me from you know throwing away the record, but he also you know without knowing it scolded me, <laughs> <laughs> which I I deserved much worse. But and, uh, at least he he t he showed you that you weren't going insane. Totally, you knew well, it was that, there. That was the thing. See, I didn't actually believe that I was insane, which most insane people don't. <laughs> <laughs> Good point, but um, but I but I thought that he was insinuating I was insane, and and who, and who the fuck does that? You know who, who, who I think he is. I respect this dude. I made records, but I'm crazy. Yeah. Fuck you. You're crazy. <laughs> the creek. <laughs> oh well, I'm glad he found it because I love that album. I remember buying it the day it came out. Hmm. Well, you know, the funny thing is four years later at the end of it, it was, it was because I always have like a, a concept in my mind of what I want a record to be or, or a, an exercise I want it to fulfill. I want it to be something I haven't done before. I want to try something that I haven't tried. Mm -hmm. That was definitely, that was compared to the winding sheet or anything I'd done with the screaming trees. That was the that was like, you know, trying to climb Mount Everest naked. Yeah. But I was trying it. And uh, at the end of the day, the record ended up being not that far from how I had first envisioned it in my bedroom. Oh, that's awesome. And the guy who really helped me finish it was a guy named John Daniello, who is a famous, now famous producer. Um but when I met him, he was the assist he was the engineer on Sweet Oblivion, and uh, went on to basically. We tried to make a follow up record, which didn't happen with the same team. But I had played him a tape of what I thought were just demos for this you know record that I'd been toiling on for two and a half, three years at that point. Yeah, and he and his excitement was dude, this is great. You come out to New York, we'll finish this thing in a week. Oh, wow. And that's what I needed to hear because John was a really enthusiastic, 
really talented, really funny, a great friend, and and just uh, put up with so much shit for me that uh, you know was a rare, rare find. And uh, and I remember after we finished it, like in two weeks, he said, "See, asshole, I told you we could." fucking thing (laughs) (laughs) so that time period you you had a a run of some some pretty wild things i mean you had uh two of my favorite trees albums you know you had sweet oblivion and dust comes out you're working with mad season you're doing your solo work how does all that and and then you know soon after that you know a couple years after that you end up working with queens of the stone age how does all that kind of stuff happen i mean i know that you're I guess you, you, there's frustration with the trees, and after dust was was done, that that was it. And uh, but I, I I do gotta have to tell you, Dying Days and Gospel Plower, two of my favorite trees tracks. Those, those are some great songs. in London last fall and I, I did gospel plow for the first time in maybe 15 years. Oh, wow. Is there any agree with that? Because uh, I have to check that. I took, <laughs> but there might be. I have to check that out because I love that, that track. Now, with, with uh, let's say like the Mad Season project, were you approached to, to contribute to that or, or was that something that you were involved in from the beginning? Oh, no, that was something I forced my way into. I said, hey, look, you guys aren't fucking making a record unless I'm singing on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Barrett Martin was the drummer in the trees, but Lane Staley was my best friend. Right. And he just called me one afternoon. And he said, hey, man, do you want to rehab this band? You know, I knew Mike McCready a little bit as a very nice guy. And, and, uh, and of course, Barrett, I knew from being in my band, but Lane, Lane was somebody I hung out with all the time. And, and he just said, Hey, do you want to come write a song with me for this record? And I, I was like, sure. And I got down there and he said, I'm just going to write a line and then you're going to write a line and then I'm going to write a line and we're just going to, let's, let's do it like that, which is something neither one of us had ever done. Oh, wow. And it was just an exercise and, you know, doing something, again, just challenging ourselves to do something. And that's how we wrote the song. 45 minutes later, it was recorded because he knew how to run the tape machine, which I learned. <laughs> I didn't, In fact, I never even learned how to do anything technical until I was in my 50s when, I, by necessity, I had to learn how to do pearls. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mad Season is one of my favorite albums of that era. It's just... it. it to me, it blows away anything Pearl Jam ever did. Um, ranks right up there with the, with the best of Alice in Chains and, and the Trees. And it's just, it was a little bit different than what all the other, a lot of the other bands were doing. It was a little, little more straightforward, in my opinion. And uh, your contributions to it were, were some of my favorite tracks. Well, 
basically I sang backups on one song and half of another song. So my, my involvement was less than an hour and a half. And then I started getting these really big royalty checks <laughs> when it became a hit. And I was like, what, what the hell? Because, you know, I, we were used to doing stuff for our friends for free yeah. all the time. And I never expected to be paid or anything, but these guys were already very successful and, they knew that I had not been, and basically, they gave me full royalty point record, which was unheard of. And um, that's fantastic. It was uh, a gesture that uh, you know was uh, was was uh, totally unexpected, and got you know paid my bills for for a few years, and also got me in deep trouble with the IRS when I got the checks. You know, oh. when I circumvented the whole uh, business manager thing, got the checks sent directly to myself, didn't pay town. <laughs> In 1997, the, uh, the criminal branch of the IRS came looking for me, and I was shocked to find out that I owed about a quarter of a million bucks oh my. in penalties and, uh, and uh, interest. Wow. So, yeah, it came back to bite me in the ass, but... Yeah. What, what, but yeah, my, that, that was just something I did for fun. I, my my ball that was just so you know minimal, and it was just something I did because my friend asked me to do it. And I had fun, you know. Oh, that's awesome, though. Then okay, so so trees do dust, and then it's over for the for the trees. When did you start working with uh, Josh Homme and Queens of the Stone Age? Well, I first started working with Josh Homme in 1996 when he became the second guitar player in the Screaming Trees. Oh, that's at, right. Yeah. At age 24. And he played every single show that we did until the very end. I mean, I had already been playing with the Queens. He asked me to be the singer in the Queens. Okay. And, and two things prevented that. I heard his voice on it, and I realized that it, it had to be him singing it. And also I was, uh, institutionalized for almost a year. So I wasn't really able to take part in, in, in <laughs> that process. That'll <laughs> prevent some stuff from happening. Yeah. Yeah. It put me on ice for a while, but, um, wow. So but, uh, how did that happen? Was, was that something that, that was that voluntary? You mean my, uh, my the, absence? From yeah. Society? Yes. It was voluntary, and it was also to get out of um, you know some legal entanglements that I had at the time. Okay. Um, but basically, by the time you know Rated R rolled around, which was really a breakthrough record. Yeah. I was there for you know that entire thing. I sang harm harmonies and backups on most of the record, and uh, sang lead on a song, co-wrote a song.
and that was great because I realized it was something that was that he was really doing something genius. Um, yeah. But I always knew that, you know, even from when he was a kid and, and playing in the trees, it was like obvious that he had more talent in his little finger than the rest of the band combined. Yeah. And he wanted to be great. And for me, even though I was in pretty bad shape there at the end of the trees, that's all I ever wanted. And none of the other guys seemed to give a damn about that originality or greatness and uh and that's why that's what drew us together and we became very tight friends even though there was almost a 10 year difference in our age span um but we uh you know he became my dude and so radar became a huge hit in the uk especially and towards the at the very last tour that they did he asked me to come along and be, be a guest, you know, just to like do what I ended up doing for years, which was just walk on, bring the darkness and, and do the song <laughs> that, that I had done on Rated R. Right. And uh, I did that. And then shortly thereafter, he asked me if I wanted to join full time. His, his concept at that point was that, there would be three of us singing and we would each do a third of the set, him, Nick and me. Okay. Because Nick hadn't been on the first record either, but it was on rated R and obviously a, you know, a force of nature and a yeah. talent, a singular talent all his own. Oh yeah. And, um, and so I agreed and wrote a lot of songs for the deaf with Josh and, that was, you know, that, that, that and singing, you know, a third of the record was my role was to write with him for that. Okay. And, um, you know, co-wrote, uh, the title track, uh, song for the dead co-wrote their still to this day, only top 10 hit. No one knows, but who's counting? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> too easy um i enjoyed it i loved it and i never thought i would be in a band again after the trees but it was a fun band to be in and it was with my friends yeah also it was such a simple job to just come on and, and just you know get into character and, and suddenly walk on and there was dracula and it, it, it gave it gave the gave the set a whole different look and that's the way he intended it and it worked out that way and and um, and then I wrote quite a bit of lullabies, the next record with Josh. Yep. And then uh, both Nick and I were um, shown the door. I was let back in. And then by mutual agreement, I moved on. Um, 
came to realize that I just, I wasn't working to my full potential. And that's been the story of my life because I'm a very lazy person. Um, although, I mean, I have been most of my life. Now I'm, I'm, I'm pretty obsessed with music and I have been for a number of years where it's the first thing I do when I get up. Well, you, um, you've really put I, out an amazing amount of work in the past few years. Well, I'll start. I didn't make a record of my own for eight years. I did. Uh, but during that eight years, I made six records and was a guest on a number of other records. But I did uh, the Gutter Twins record, two records with the Bull Savers, three records with Isabel Campbell, and uh, and then Twilight Singers records as well. Right, yeah. yeah. So it wasn't like I was touring on a lot. In Big 12, I made Blues Funeral. that became my most successful record ever and plus it was the funnest record I'd ever made and Alan Johannes and I hadn't worked together since 2004 and and really you know I worked I tell people this I, I was I made records for 15 years and then I met Alan Johannes and, and then my my life in music really began yeah he's an amazing guy well he's, he's also the most talented guy I've ever known he's he's you know, my best friend and, and, uh, I've learned, a, I've learned a lot from him. Um, but he was the first guy I ever met that was able to, uh, make my vision a reality. Oh, cool. I, I still was not able to do that. You know, I was only able to describe what I wanted my songs to sound like and then show somebody some shitty acoustic guitar part and say, but I want this to sound like the kinks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it was a losing battle for whoever was trying to work with me. <laughs> but Al, I would tell him that sort of thing, and then within an hour, we would have almost a completed song. You know what I mean? And it was, not only was it what I had asked for, but it also exceeded that, you know, like, by so, by such a huge margin at, um, I knew that I was going to make records with this guy as long as I possibly could. That's awesome. And, and although I've you know done a lot of other things while I've known Al, you know, about side projects and this and that, when it comes to Mark Lanigan or Mark Lanigan band records, he's the only guy I will ever work with. That's amazing. He's such a great. He's 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 actually been on the podcast too, and and uh, he was so fantastic to talk to he you know he was open and willing to talk about everything and and uh he was one of the only people that i was really nervous to talk to because his work has been so incredible and he's done so much i i, I don't even know where to begin so i was gonna say your your cover the gutter twins cover of flow like a river i i, I think is fantastic too so well the last record Natasha sang on was the Gutter Twins record. Um, 
that she had just been given the diagnosis the day before, but we had this, you know, um, we'd had this uh, session already booked, and and she wanted to uh, to go forward. She also sang a lot of my solo stuff, some of which um, didn't didn't come out until later, like. Uh, as extra songs on a box set or something, you know, like uh, rarities or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But she was, you know, she was a force of nature and just uh, one of the most talented people ever and also just, you know, wonderful human being. Together they were uh, just an amazing team. It was the the funnest times I've ever had making records were when it was just me, Al, and Natasha, um, you know, making making records in their house, yeah. and basically it'd be me and Al, and then Natasha would stick her head in and say, "Well, you know, Mark, you should try doing this like this. You know, give me some uh, give me some tips, which were always spot on. I mean, because she was." She was a producer in her own right and also just amazing singer. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, incredible. But, um, yeah, we, uh, we were hit pretty hard by that loss. Yeah. Um, then over the course of the next year, Al and I made Blue's Funeral with his mother dying of cancer and on the couch every day while we're making noise. And I always felt like, God, you know, I, I just didn't, I, I was like, ow, can we keep this quiet? I mean, your mom is out there and she's ill and she, and I would come out of the bedroom and she would be like, Oh honey, the, the music sounds so beautiful. I'm proud of you. Oh wow. She was just a wonderful person. And so he lost Natasha, then he lost his mother, then he met his father for the first time, who yeah. was who was a uh, a rock star in Chile, and his uncle was basically the Elvis Presley of Chile. Yeah, we talked about that, yeah. And uh, he had never met him. And so after he lost Natasha and lost his mom, he met his, his family in Chile, and within two years his father and his uncle had both died as well. Yeah. So it's loss after loss after loss for Al. And this is a guy who was born in Chile, but raised in Mexico and came to the United States at age 13, not knowing how to speak a word of English, but by age 17 was on American bandstand. Yep. And his backing band was the guys, of course, who ended up being the red hot chili peppers. Yeah. So it's an amazing story. He has lived an extraordinary life, and uh, I recently was hanging out with John Paul Jones, who did something for my records coming out in May, and what, what a cool guy he is. Oh, man. But, uh, but you know, all we talked about was Alan, how much we both loved him, and, you know, just what a talent he was. And, and John Paul Jones, by the way, the coolest guy ever. Really? I keep hearing that. I've, I've, had, I've spoken to a few people who've, who've done some work with him, and they say he's he's just the nicest guy. He's not only the nicest guy, but he's a true artist. I mean, he 
he toured in Diamanda Gallus's band for two years. That's and then she lived with him and his family for a year after that. You know what I mean? And I remember seeing her in the 80s and she scared the shit out of me. She scares the <laughs> shit out of me now. I'm 46 years old. <laughs> so he's, he's a true artist and just what a gentleman and just so cool. Oh, yeah. And, and I, again, I have Josh to thank you know, for turning him on to Bubblegum because I remember Josh telling me, yeah, JPJ really likes Bubblegum. And then he sent me a, and then Josh sent me an email of a clip of an interview with Joel Jones and they were asking him what kind of music he listened to. And he was like, well, I'm not really up on, you know, current music, but I recently was turned on to this record by this guy. And I think it's maybe five years old or six years old, but it's, it's my favorite record right now. It's Bubblegum by this guy named Mark Lanigan. I was like, <laughs> wow. And of course, that's how I met Tony Bourdain as well. Josh turned him onto my music and Tony became, you know, like my biggest champion and um, enthusiast. Um, that was another so, whirlwind. Jeez, that guy was, he was always doing something. Yeah. Well, you know, what a, what a loss. I mean, yeah. I, just what. What a dark, dark time we are in right now, especially here in Los Angeles where we are expecting martial law at any moment and the tanks to roll in. Uh, and here's this guy who goes to all these countries that are being vilified by our criminal government and putting a human face on these people that are just people yeah. like us, yeah. you know? And he spent his life doing that. And, uh, he became, he's, well, he's the guy who talked me into writing the book. He convinced me that I could do something that was like what he had done, which was write a book, whether you had ever worked in a kitchen or not, you could read it and be, and find interest in it. Yeah, exactly. Kitchen Confidential was amazing. Exactly. And he, and he convinced me that I was able to do the same thing only with music. And I'm not sure I succeeded, but... But he, uh, but he definitely uh, talked me into it. He said, "He said, just pick one story because you have millions of them, and write a prologue, and uh, and then send it to me, and I'll tell you whether we can turn this thing into literature." Because I was like, "I'm not going to make some shitty rock bio. Forget it." Yeah, it it has to have some. It, it I mean, literature is a huge word. And, I probably shouldn't be throwing that around, but I wasn't going to make a book, you know, that was like Mark Lanigan with, you know, somebody who wrote it or whatever. Okay. So, yeah. It, it had, it had to be, it had to have, it had to be like the books that I enjoyed reading. And of course I knew I was not going to be Cormac McCarthy and it wasn't <laughs> going to be, Blood Meridian, yeah. but but it had to be it had to be closer to that than it had, than somebody you know whoever ghost written book by whoever you know yeah. some rock book and um, and he convinced me that that was possible and and some days I believe that I actually achieved it. Of course, I lost him halfway through the process, yeah. and that was a huge loss. But I also had this other guy, Mitch Kashubali, at the same time. Uh, Writing instructor at Yale, a best-selling memoirist himself, oh, and wow. 
a huge fan of my music who I'd met via Twitter and he taught me how to write it and edited it and uh, eventually we got it done and just now you just saw the me opening up the, the box of the first the first books you know yeah I can't wait to read it well you know unfortunately I also made a record to come out with it at the record companies uh, at their uh, request yeah and and this just happens to be the year when I'm not going to be able to work for an entire year and these <laughs> This book and this record are, are basically, yeah. you know, go unnoticed, but that's fine because it, it, just the fact that I was able to pull it off, that was enough for me. And I'm, I'm actually very proud of the record, too, because yeah, when it, I had to, that. it had to happen really fast because I only had Al for 10 days. And so I ended up, it's the first record that I've ever, that I myself recorded a lot of it myself and oh. played. And there were songs where I played like almost every instrument myself. Yes, there, Al would always like sneak because like, I think starting with Blues Funeral and, and Phantom Radio, he would start the process by me singing because by that time I was I had enough of a tiny prowess where I could actually play acoustic guitar and sing at the same time. <laughs> so he would record me, you know, doing laying down a song like that. And then he would build the song around it. Oh, wow. And then, and then I'd be listening to the mix and I'd be like, wait a minute. Is that my fucking shitty acoustic guitar I hear way in the background there? <laughs> he, he would sneak it in. He'd be like, it sounded great, man. And that's, you know, so he did sneak my guitar on there a few times. Um, that's awesome. But this was the first time I was ever actually proud to say, yeah, I played uh, this, 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 and this on the song. And, and uh, also recorded it, by the way, engineered it. That's amazing. Um, but my wife, Al, taught her how to use Pro Tools in in, in half an hour. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, and she taught me to do it in six months. <laughs> <laughs> so the songs on the, <laughs> the new album, uh, so Straight Songs of Sorrow, were those a result of writing the book? Yeah, the book was a really unhappy process for me. It wasn't uh, a cathartic, cathartic experience in any way. It was, it was a lot of stuff I had just put away or hadn't. You know, I'm somebody who tries to stay in here and now. Anyway, mm -hmm. I don't do a lot of looking backwards, especially not into you know dark, painful, shitty behaviors. <laughs> you know, I just. I'd done that and I left it alone. I'm moving on. Yeah. And, um, Makes sense. But I was forced, you know, by the very nature of writing a memoir to go back into that time frame and put myself in that and, you know, remembered so many things that I hadn't, I had just put away. I hadn't even remembered them, you know, but yeah. then when they started back, it was an unhappy, it was an unhappy revelation of what I had done for 10 years, you know? Yeah. And uh, then, then of course, to write it down in a way that is going to be interesting to read. I mean, it was just like, oh, my God, I might as well try and swim to Japan. You know, <laughs> that I'm going to have as much luck doing that as I'm going to getting this book finished and in a way that's going to be readable. But but I did. But as soon as I was done, I was really happy to get back to music because that's my 
my love and that's what I get up and do every day. And as I started writing these songs, I realized that they were directly linked to the memories from the book. And, and it was, you know, they were the most honest songs I'd ever written. And, and by that, I mean, you know, songs aren't real life. They're, they're for me, they're, they're about creating a mood yeah. and they start in some seed of reality, but then they're not reality at all. Okay. But these songs were linked directly to people, incidents, memories, um, and almost every song on the record was that way. intelligence because nobody would ever link that with me (laughs) (laughs) but there there was something more to this than i had ever done before and i made i've made a lot of records by the way yeah (laughs) you've also done a lot of different projects and guested on a lot of stuff and you recently opened up the vault so now the the vault is that everything you've ever done and how in the hell did if that is how did you collect all that stuff well it's not it's all the stuff that's available on on streaming sites so okay so basically you know like the most the more obscure interesting stuff and the rarities and shit are stuff that spotify wouldn't carry because spotify is basically their business is is turning you know the streaming business into the equivalent of Billy Joel playing 24 hours a day. Right. Yeah. Lowest common denominator. So, you know, um, there's a lot of stuff that I've done that's not on there. Okay. But the guy who built the vault went out of his way is a guy named Andy Hurst, very talented web designer and very, uh, creative dude who came up with this idea sought out as obscure as stuff as he could find and as much as of it as he could find and he came up with like some 200 songs or something that I had Jeez. been on or been part of or had co-written and Like, you know, friends of mine or fellow musicians, friends, peers to do playlists of their favorite songs. Oh, cool. And uh, and so that's what you'll find on there. Uh, um, all right, I have a question about some of just a little bit of the content on that. 
one of the things I've been wanting to get and I haven't been able to get because I haven't been able to see you live since 93, I think. It was the Alternative Nation tour. So, uh, Jesus. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, it was somewhere in New Jersey. I think I was the only dude in the, in the, uh, in the crowd wearing a Sub Pop shirt at the time, so. I'm pretty sure I was the only dude who was drunk off of his ass and <laughs> drank a fifth of Jägermeister in the 20 minutes he was on stage <laughs> in the 120 degree heat. Well, anyway. Screaming Trees was the only band I went there to see. I did, I, I did not care about the Spin Doctors or Soul Asylum. I wanted to see the Screaming Trees. So. You were a huge Spin Doctors fan. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Damn it. I don't know. I don't know how you can see through me like that. It's amazing through <laughs> through uh, FaceTime. It's incredible. But uh, it's true. We all were. Yeah. You know what? <laughs> I admit I was a fan as well. I'll tell you what. You know, they were all nice guys except for one of them who was a total prick. Yeah, I did. The one thing that I liked that they did do was that Jimi Hendrix cover they did on the that um, Spanish Castle Magic. That was they did a really good job on that. But yeah, they did, but but then again, Jimi Hendrix was born in Seattle, so that's true. There you go. But the so the the question I had is since I haven't seen you live in years, I have never had a chance to get the Dark Mark Christmas EP. Is that on the vault? It, it you know we talked about making that stuff available, and I because. At Christmas time, Andy's business got broken into and, oh, and like computers all stolen and his business got fucked up. And plus now everybody's business is fucked up. We haven't really gotten into that uh, conversation, but that was one thing. For a long time, I thought, you know, maybe I'll make an actual release of this because we've, we've repressed it a bunch of times. It was, it was, we basically did it, me and Alan, in an afternoon because I had two specific Christmas shows to do, one in the Netherlands and one in Belgium. And I just wanted a piece of like, you know, actual some Christmas item to sell. Right. And so we, we found the darkest, you know, Christmas songs we could find. And, <laughs> and then, of course, there had to be, my version of Andy Williams doing Oh Holy Night because Andy Williams is the greatest singer of all time. And oh, yeah. And that's one where I basically gave myself a hernia trying to hit the high notes. <laughs> when Christ was born Oh Yeah, we've repressed that a bunch of times. It's uh, you can find it on Discogs for 150 bucks, probably. I think it's but, up to 215 uh, now. I, I think I looked uh, at it yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> we'll probably press it again someday. I mean, okay. you know, initially, initially it was just pressed on CDs, which yeah. nobody buys. Me. Except then, me. Uh, Except me. Oh, you do. I oh. still, I still, I've got about 4,000 downstairs in the room below me right now. Oh my God! Yeah. Wow, I don't know. I don't own any, <laughs> except except for like the leftover ones that you know my merch when they stop selling. <laughs> <laughs> See, for me, I'm so afraid of keeping everything just on a device. I'm so afraid it's going to get corrupted or I'm going to lose it or break. That I as want, you, yes, as, uh, you, 
But, you know, I learned that the hard way when I went into my bag of cassettes, which I always did when I started a record. Because mm-hmm. I had bags and bags of cassettes and just like pieces of songs, demos, stuff. And I would always start a record by going into those tapes and finding something that I, you know, was that I hadn't understood at the time or was now unlocked. And I would usually start a record that way. Yeah. In that eight years, I didn't make a record when I went to go through the bag in 2012 to start blues funeral. I found out that every single cassette had been demagnetized. And I sat there and listened to like 40 tapes all the way through blank completely. Every one of them, not one sound on them. (laughs) Oh my God. <laughs> oh, like that is a horrible. Yeah, always back up, always back up your shit on, on hard, <laughs> multiple hard drives. <laughs> well, one of the things that you've done in the past that I loved is you've done a couple albums of covers. I'll take care yeah. of you and imitations. And my favorite out, out of all of those is your version of Little Sadie. I absolutely love that. How do you go about deciding what songs you like? Because most of them are older songs. The only I think the only recent one on that is the Chelsea Wolf song, right? The uh, Flatlands. Um, well, there was also a Nick Cave song. There was a Greg, a song Greg Dooley wrote. Oh, okay. That uh, that when at the time he gave it to me, I realized I'll never be able to put this on a record because you never put somebody else's song on your record, and it's the best song on your record. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I had to wait until I had a covers record to actually put it on. <laughs> <laughs> but I also did the same thing with the uh, with the first record, even though it wasn't, um, you know, right of its time. It was it was the modern, you know, it was the Leaving Trains, the Gun Club, the songs that I included on the first covers record that were more of the present time than say say tim harden or little sadie or yeah you know that stuff tried to put you know my concept with both those records were completely different one was the first one was like the soul and and folk and country songs that had influenced me and the second one was the sort of kind of crooner music that my folks listened to and that i later that i did not understand at all for a very long time but then when i when I saw a YouTube clip of Andy Williams singing solitaire live on a TV show. Yeah. And I did the math and I found out he was 49 at the time. And that was eight years older than I was at that time. And I realized never in my life would I ever be able to sound like that. Certainly not in eight years from then, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and he was doing this live on TV and, and that's what started my, uh, you know, my my sort of um, obsession with Andy Williams. Okay. The first 
I also loved a singer named Dave Van Ronk, who I was lovely, uh, lucky enough to meet before he passed away. Same with Buck Owens. But I did a Buck Owens song in the first record, and I also did a, a song that I learned from Dave Van Ronk called The Shantyman's Life. Yes. Well, with the second record, I did my version of Mac the Knife is his version of Mac the Knife, note for note. I did it exactly as he did it. Oh, okay. And that was my homage to him. But on that second record, there were four songs that I learned from Andy Williams. Uh, Lonely Street, Solitaire, Autumn Leaves. His version was the only one I'd ever heard. And uh, there's a, God, there's one more song. I can't think of exactly what it is right now, but four songs. Oh, that's not true. There was just a three on that record. And then, of course, my version of Oh, Holy Night, which was a complete rip-off of his version. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Different record, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, because I've been thinking about uh, listening to, uh, to I'll Take Care of You a lot lately. And, and it just, I had um, uh, Michael Girard on a, a few months ago. And I always thought, you're one of the only people I think that could actually pull off doing a cover of Swans and do it some kind of justice. Well, I love Swans. You know, this is crazy, but I especially love them when they went when they were on Universal and the, and they were making sort of like a commercial bid. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, like the, was, the Burning World era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I love that stuff. I mean, I've loved all the Swans records. And by the way. Bill Reeveland, who was my drummer for three years. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry to hear that. And But he also played on those, you know, later Swans records, these past few, which were incredible as well. Um, yeah, what a loss, man. Yeah. Well, only time I've ever, that the drummer in my band was my band leader and taught the songs to everybody. And there was songs that I could never, like, there was couple songs in particular that i could never get the note right to start the song and i would have to lean back and bill would be behind the drums and he would sing the note to me in my ear so i would so the song would start you know i mean he was he was a real musician and also one of the world's nicest guys he played on imitations he played on field songs Um, oh yeah 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 that, that was a huge Huge blow. Yeah, that, that was. Uh, I, I mean, I, you know, I didn't know him, but I, I've had a lot of people on the show who'd worked with him, and uh, that would that was a terror. There were so many wonderful tributes to him on the social media accounts that I was looking at in the past few days. So, but man, I've kept you for quite a while now, and I want to thank you so much for spending time with me. Where can people find the, the pre-order the book and the the new album that are coming out? Well, I think Amazon has put a stop to <clears throat> their their uh, book selling for for the moment. Okay, but I'm going to look real quick and see if I can find if you got a second. Yeah, yeah. Because I know there is a place, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't know where that was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially since. My re- my book companies expect me to help try and sell these books. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are they thinking? Jeez. Yeah, I know. Um, How dare they? 
I know. Always wanting more. <laughs> I know. You give and you give. They just want and more. I, and I've given all I can give. <laughs> they ought to know that by now. Jeez. I think they knew that in like 1983. <laughs> Still, I pretended as though I knew <laughs> that I had more to offer. <laughs> well, they believed you, apparently. Yeah. God damn it. Yeah, let me see here. Let me see here. God damn. Well, I know that I know that Rough Trade in England has them. Okay. And also um, Waterstones carries them. In England. Okay. Uh, in the States, I really couldn't tell you because I don't even know, did bookstores exist in this country anymore? I don't know. There, I've seen a couple used bookstores where I live, but I don't, they closed all the, uh, the no, well, there's Books A Million. They're still open. We've got one of those here. Yeah. God damn. But at this point, I don't know if they're actually physically open. Okay, wait a minute. I have found something here, book-related. And I'm looking at social media. That's, <laughs> that's what it's good for. That's um, not it. No, it just says, it just says it's, it's, uh, it's due for release on April 30th. <laughs> um, in England, it's White Rabbit. Okay. I, see, I pulled up uh, Amazon, and it says, uh, just give you pre-order price guarantee, prime delivery. It'll be released on April 28th. Okay. Yeah. I, I had heard that they, maybe it's just Los Angeles, but I had heard that they had limited their uh, the deliveries to just essential items and uh, books were not essential. Well, I guess my dog toenail clippers I was going to buy today are out the window then. Well, yeah, and that box of suppositories that you had online. And the entire Spin Doctor's discography that I was going to buy. <laughs> you mean both records? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, you know, it's not, it's not fair of me to make fun of the Spin Doctors or anybody else. I, I apologize for that because <laughs> that's, that's not cool. It's all right. Nobody's going to hear this anyway. That's, <laughs> there's, there's that as well yes. and when they find the guest is you definitely won't <laughs> oh man Mark thank you so much for spending so much time with me I really do appreciate it it's been a blast talking to you my pleasure and uh, hopefully we'll uh, talk again someday baby 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 don't you say it's over yeah I never wanted to, baby, 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 I'm a bleed all over, yeah, that's what it's coming to, I want it, 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 one thing to believe in, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 